full of worship with you. Is God good all the time? Two weeks ago, um, I, I would look out on the audience and, and every week I could see my mom back there with Emily and Jeanette and Ryan and, and just lately with Dominique and, and May and, and Diane and Elmer and just sitting back there and baking bread for people and, and giving things to people here in our church and making quilts and a, a vibrant life that had more energy than most people half her age. And then just 10 days later, she's in eternity. With real rest, thank God for that. She no longer has to meet the demands of people that want a quilt from her or something from her. She gets to rejoice in heaven and truly the definition of rest, heaven itself. And it's heartbreaking being up here and especially where we left off last week with honoring thy father and thy mother. Two weeks ago, it was a theory, and now you're having to deal with all these things where, where it actually becomes part of your very life as you're evaluating your decisions. And Jesus, as he's bringing in here to Matthew chapter 5, really understanding what it means to follow a commandment versus a tradition that these Pharisees had just literally imposed and burdened the people with. And the freedom that we have in Christ, in the word of God, the commandments themselves, and what Jesus does in bringing this out. We read two weeks ago here in, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 3, he answered and he said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or his mother, whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift of God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God no effect by your tradition. And that word that is used more times in the book of Matthew than any other book in the Bible, hypocrite. So, Father, tonight as we approach your throne room, and we thank you that you are still on the throne, even in the heartbreaks, even in the mourning, in the, even in the grieving, even in the times where it feels like the weight of the world is upon our very shoulders, whatever it may be, and to know that you are still on the throne right now. That even all the way back to the saints of old, Jeremiah writing that amazing book of Lamentations as he himself is mourning and groaning in his very soul, looks up to heaven in that last of those verses in the book of Lamentations that you're still, your throne forever is still there from generation to generation. We know you do not change. You are always there in the heartbreaks of life. So, Lord, I ask you be with these, my friends and my family. I, I would not want to be anywhere else. The privilege of being with the people of God. So, Lord, I ask that you speak to us powerfully tonight. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, I'm so grateful I can just call upon Pastor Mike Ostheimer, and he, he's willing to fill in for me. And then on Monday nights, the men that just stepped up and filled in, it's truly an amazing thing to watch the gifts of the church being used to edify the saints. And especially as you, you have to deal with the decisions of, should I be with my mom? And she's, we were literally sleeping with my mom in the same room for about eight nights. Emily and I, and every single change in her breath, Emily was up. Emily was always up, checking on my mom as if it were, she were her own. And, and it's truly uh, a privilege to be there. The last uh, song that we were listening to as she took her last breath was Heroes. It's absolutely amazing. Where's my mom right now? I know beyond a shadow of a doubt where she has, is. Yeah, because she had a sure hope. It's a privilege to know where our loved ones are right now, those that have gone before us.
But the questions of this life, as Jesus is fielding these questions, and, and rather than answering this question that is meant to cause Jesus to go off topic, he gets to the heart of the matter that they're arguing over a tradition, and he brings to them this question of a commandment. And of course, a commandment always is weightier, always is more important than a tradition. And, and he goes to this commandment. By the way, we all know this. It's the, the first commandment with a promise. But it's also the first commandment with a curse as well. Because not only is there long life promised by honoring your parents, but what is the opposite if you don't honor your parents? As Jesus brings out, there was to be a curse even to a stoning of death, right? Let him be put to death, right? There was this consequence for not honoring your parents if you were to curse them. And so what Jesus is doing is he's showing this contrast of you're honoring the washing of hands, but you're not honoring. Uh, the commandment of honoring your parents. And what were they doing? We talked about this again two weeks ago. They were saying, I, I'm, I'm going to set aside this money for the Lord, and I, I can't help you, mom and dad. I, I can't support you during your time of need. And of course, in a, a day and age when there was no social security or any form of government assistance, and, and, and parents had to rely upon their kids to help them out in their older age, this was a much needed part of the society. Jesus says there in verse 7, hypocrites, did Isaiah prophecy, prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain, they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. And every single one of us have to come to this conclusion. Who do you want to please? Why do you do the things that you do? Is it to impress a person? Is it to have a, a good eulogy at your funeral? Is it to impress maybe a, a person that you're, you're trying to get to notice you? Or are you trying to honor God? Because at the very end of life, whose opinion ultimately matters? Not a single human opinion will matter. There's only one opinion that matters, and it's God. So Jesus rightly addresses this. He, he gets to the very heart of the matter without, by the way, even answering the question of the Pharisees until later. And then in verse 10, again, he still hasn't answered their question. He says there in verse 10, when, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? What Jesus could have done is he could have tried to please the Pharisees. And by the way, they were the elite of the religious leaders. These were the ones that had gone to seminary. These were the ones that had studied the law their entire lives. These were the ones that made the law their tradition in terms of who they were, it was part of who they were. And Jesus being this rabbi, this person who came as a teacher to the people, he could have wanted to get their attaboys or their honorific. But what does he do instead? He offends them with the word of God. He offends them, not with his personality, but with the very word of God itself, the commandments of God, using the scriptures themselves. What we're supposed to do as Christian men and women, it's not about trying to gain a place in this world. It's trying to understand that it is God's opinion that matters. Everything I do should be honoring to 
Jesus, of course, he, in a better way than a lot of us do. He offends the Pharisees in such a way that not only is he offending them, but yet he's still obeying the scriptures, right? Uh, most of us were not as eloquent as Jesus is. He, he says it this way, by the way, in verse 13. But he answered and said, For every fruit to which my, or plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. What's the comparison that Jesus does here? He, he shows two different illustrations. The first is a plant, and, and a plant that is not in the right place, that wasn't planted by God. What is going to happen to that plant? It's going to be uprooted. Okay, have you ever tried to uproot a plant, a weed, or whatever? I, and again, the illustrations tonight, every single one, it really hits home. I was walking into my mom's house, and right beside the front door, she has a bucket. And in that bucket are, is a trowel, a small shovel, a, a small uh, rake, and then this foam board. Because what my mom would do every single summer night was when she would go out to the front yard or the backyard and she would weed. This 82-year-old woman on her knees on this foam board that she had for 20 years or more and this shovel and literally pull up every single weed in her flower garden. And to see just the love for those plants. Why do you pull up the weeds in your garden? Or why are you supposed to? Most of us don't pull up the weeds in our garden. Most of us just spray whatever it is on it, right? Or ignore them. Or just have all weeds in our garden. Why do we pull up the weeds in our garden? Yeah, you want the good things to grow and the bad things to die. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying here. They're going to be uprooted. It's not our job to uproot them. Let them alone. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he gives the next illustration, let them alone and let them fall in the ditch themselves. We can argue all day long, and if their heart is hard, if their neck is stiff, you can't change them. There's only one person who can. That's the Holy Spirit. We can pray for them. We can ask the Lord to change their heart. But all the apologetics, all the arguing, all the trying to manipulate the way that they're thinking, it won't work if the Holy Spirit isn't in it. And, and so what Jesus says there in the very last phrase, they are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. They're just weeds, and they're just blind. They're, they're oblivious to what is going on in the Word of God. They're putting their traditions over the commandments of God. They're weighing down the people with all these burdens. They're blind to the truth. And then Jesus eventually now explains these things. Verse 15, as Peter asked, Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, are you still also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? Thank God it's okay if you don't wash your hands. Of course, this was the under, before the understanding of germs. What happens with God purposely put enzymes in our stomach to protect us? And so it's okay if you eat a little bit of dirt. It's okay if you eat a little bit of sand. It's okay if your hands aren't washed all the way and you eat some food and then it goes into your, to your stomach. And this is what Jesus is truly trying to get across here. It's not what goes into your stomach or your body that affects your soul it's what comes out pastor mike ostheimer he always says this a person by when they're bumped right the, that that cup that is full what's in it when it's bumped you understand what's in it 
If, if there are good things, if there's something delicious in that cup and you bump it, it's something that's sweet. If, if it's bitter, what happens when you bump that cup? When you bump that purse? What comes out is what really is in the heart. It's not what goes in, it's what comes out. What Jesus says there in verse 18, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile the man. As Proverbs says, the heart is deceitful. Don't follow your heart. Don't do the mantra of the world and follow your heart. Because your heart will always lead you astray. Whose heart should we follow? Jesus brings us out. It's God's heart. For out of the heart proceed evil things, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hand does not defile a man. Now, thank God that we understand a little bit in terms of of germs and those things. And of course, yes, we're supposed to wash our hands before we eat and all those things that we do. Uh, but it, it, it's interesting what Jesus is really bringing out here. It, it, it's not, even if that germ that you eat and it kills you eventually, or you get sick from that germ, if your heart is right with the Lord, where are you going? Where are you ultimately going? Yeah. But if your heart is not right with the Lord, if your heart is deceitful, if your heart, as it lists here, all these various sins that are listed here, blasphemies, false witness, thefts, fornications, adulteries, if those things are hidden in your heart, that's worse than any germ. That, that's worse than any disease because that determines your eternity. It determines where you go if you're not right with the Lord. If the Lord isn't in your heart, where do you go? But thank God it's, it's what God does to a heart, making it a new person, softening uh, the heart, taking that heart of stone and turning it into a heart that is pliable and useful for the Lord. Do you understand that it's truly a privilege to have a broken heart? As the ladies were singing earlier tonight, that alabaster jar, what, hap what had to happen to the alabaster jar? It broke it. In order for that uh, you know, rich, uh, vibrant, fragrant perfume to be poured out on the feet of Jesus. As it literally filled the room with that amazing smell. But something had to be broken for the fragrance to come out. And it's the same thing uh, with us as well. And this leads perfectly now into the next, literally one right after another, this contrast between the, this lady that, that comes up to Jesus and then the hard hearts of the Pharisees themselves. Because this woman now comes up, and by the way, now uh, Jesus is no longer at the Sea of Galilee. Now he's on the coast, the northernmost northmost part of, of Israel there in Tyre and, and Sidon. And, and he, he's in the, these villages that are there, and they're mostly made up of Gentiles. It says there in verse 21, Then Jesus went out from there. He departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan uh, came from that region and cried out to him, saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Uh, There's this contrast between the piety, the proud, self-centered heart of the Pharisees and the brokenness of this lady. And by the way, every single time you see this phrase that Jesus says, the astonishment of Jesus over faith, it is always said to a Gentile every single time. And thank God that in terms of what this lady is saying truly to the heart of the matter as she says this, but he answered her not a word. His disciples came and urged him saying, send her away 
for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the, mo to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The primary purpose that Jesus came to the earth, of course, what the Bible tells us, not only to the nation of Israel, the primary nation of Israel, but also to the rest of the world. And aren't you glad for that? What this lady says there in verse 25, then she came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. She doesn't give up. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and, and throw it to the little dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Is this lady persistent? Is this lady giving up? I was so blessed. I were in the hospital, and I called a couple of people, called some people at my mom's church, Grace Bible, and called some people up in Tatchby, called some people here. And over the next eight days, almost 100 people came by the house. And some of you guys more than once. And some of you guys more than twice. You were persistent. You prayed over my mom. You prayed for my mom. There was three generations of pastors that came down from Tehachapi to, to, to read scripture and pray over my mom. The last day that, that my mom was alive on Sunday, we had a, a church service in her room. And we were singing and reading Psalm 16, Psalms 116. And, and the privilege of, of knowing that we have a, a good God who hears our prayers does he ever get tired of us asking will he ever say go away the disciples are telling jesus to say go away but does jesus say go away no in fact in the very next phrase here i, I love what it says the persistence of this lady then jesus answered and said to her "O woman great is your faith he never says that to an Israelite. He always says it to a Gentile. The, the Israelites had made their religion, their, the law, to literally value over their faith. Their faith had shrunk and their legalism had grown. And what Jesus is showing, not only his disciples, but those that are around him, the persistence of this lady, as he himself even says, the miracles are for the Israelites. I, I'm here to get, bring these miracles about because of the prophetic word of God. I'm here to show the Israelites that I am the Messiah and the persistence of this Gentile lady who didn't even know any of the prophecies, by the way, uh, who, who, who didn't even understand anything about the Old Testament. She's just a Gentile wanting Jesus to heal her daughter. And she has more faith than all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the legal people that, that know the Old Testament and have examined the scriptures over and over again. And their faith is nothing. Because instead of looking to God, they're looking to their own tradition. They're looking to their own pride. They're looking to their own selves. O woman, great is your faith. Let it be as you desire. And what happened to her daughter? And when did it happen? Those demons that were in that little girl, that daughter, leave that very hour. Who has authority? The problem is what we do is we look at faith and whether it's the, maybe the things that we've experienced in our life in the past or, or those things that we wrestle with in terms of the things that we see in this world or science or whatever it may be. And, and to know that God still works miracles, to see hard hearts melted, to see lives changed. That's the greatest miracle. To see salvation happen in the hardest of hearts. 
Does God see your persistent prayers for those that you know that don't know him? Yes, he does. Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, he says the same exact phrase, by the way. Just, just a, a couple of chapters before. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not seen such great faith even in Israel. Wow. All, all these people that, that have the word of God, who are supposed to be the examples to the world of what it meant to have faith, and now they're being shown up by a Gentile. And a, a woman in, in Tyre and Sidon who's just clinging to Jesus knowing that he's the only one that can save her daughter. And when, when our faith is at the bottom, when all we can do is cling to Jesus. Wow. What Jesus does. It's truly a privilege. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15, it says this. This is the heart, this is the heart of God. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I've inscribed you on the palm of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. The beauty of that verse, before the cross, and now you read it in light of the cross, what that truly means. The only scars in heaven, the only wounds in heaven, as Jesus looks at those wounds, what does he see? You. Your name inscribed on his hand. But better, better than any stone that you're going to get with your name on it. And thank God we're going to get a stone with our name on it. But to know that Jesus sees you written on the palm of his hand. Because he died for you. He died for you and he died for me. Continues on there in verse 29. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, went up to the mountain. He sat down there. Then great multitudes came uh, to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet. He healed them just as he did. In the previous feeding of the 5,000, which, by the way, only happened two chapters before. <laughs> so multitudes marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seen, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days. And have nothing to eat. I, I don't know if you've ever been to, whether it's a retreat or something like that. And, and, and this is what Jesus is having to deal with here. This multitude that is there. It takes time to go from person to person. And he's not doing just a general healing, just a general crying out of, of what is happening in the multitude. But literally every single person, a personal touch from the Savior. And what is Jesus doing? He has, he's bringing this about. He says, and, and I did not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Did, did Jesus not only was concerned for their, the sickness that they were going through, but also the hunger as well. Jesus concerned for their very being, their, their whole being, if you will. And by the way, this, this crowd here is, is a thousand uh, less than the previous crowd, the feeding of the 5,000. This is the, the lesser known feeding, if you will. Uh, th this is the feeding that, that's only found here in the book of Matthew. It, it, it's not as well known as the previous feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus feeds uh, the people there. In verse 33, he says, Then his disciples said to him, Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? You think they would have learned from the previous. Just go and find a little kid with a lunch, and Jesus is going to multiply it again, right? There's a thousand less people, right? It should be easier, right? And by the way, 
when they do find this lunch, it actually has more than the previous one with, with the 5,000. What Jesus is doing here, it, it, not only does he have more to produce for less uh, people, but even at the end, as we're going to see here, it, it becomes an, a more abundant than the feeding of uh, the 5,000. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. So this is at least two more pieces of bread and probably at least one more fish, if not more. We don't know the exact amount of fish in this case. And so Jesus actually literally has more to work with and less people to feed. But is it still any less of a miracle? No. It's still impossible in terms of human terms, right? But he does exactly the same thing he did at the feeding of the 5,000. Exactly the same. So he commanded and the multitude sat down on the ground. They took the seven loaves and the fish. He gave thanks. Exactly like he did with the 5,000. Had them all sit in groups, just like the 5,000. Bless the bread and the fish, just like uh, the 5,000. And he starts breaking it off, just like the 5,000. Gives it to the disciples, just like the 5,000. And the disciples gave it to the multitude, just like the 5,000. So they all ate and they were filled just like the 5,000, by the way. And he took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Can you imagine that? And we don't know if it's a boy or, or who it is this time. We're not really told this time whose lunch it is. But to have those loaves that, that were able to fit in a single lunch box now take the space of seven large baskets. So much so that as these fragments that are left over on the grass are gathered into the seven baskets, the blessing of God over this food. Is there abundance in the blessings of God? Now, those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children, and they sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and they went over to the region of Magdala. This is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, again, as he's having to deal with first the Gentile woman, and thank God that there's always this understanding that God doesn't give us the same over and over again. He doesn't have to deal with the Pharisees all the time. But now as he's getting off the boat here in Magdala, he again has to deal with the Pharisees. First, there's these miracles that happen. First, there's these blessings. First, there's this understanding that there's great faith outside of the nation of Israel, and then he gets to these Pharisees again. And again, he uses this word hypocrite more than any other time or in any other book in the Bible here in the book of Matthew, this term that is a, a literally a facade. It's a term used in theater. We talked about this more when we first saw the, the Pharisees. But what he brings out about the Pharisees being hypocrites is that there's a little bit of hypocrisy, a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. Have you ever pointed your finger? You might be a Pharisee. Have you ever judged someone by their outward appearance? You might be a Pharisee. Have you ever put pers a person on a guilt trip? You might be a Pharisee. Have you ever been motivated by money? You might be a Pharisee. Have you ever wanted people to notice you? <clears throat> you might be a Pharisee. Have you ever failed to practice what you preach? You might be a Pharisee. There, there's a, a great book that Pastor Mike Ostheimer always recommends is Accidental Pharisee. And it's a really good book. It talks about how all of us can, you know, accidentally, of course, most of the time it's not accidental. We can accidentally become a Pharisee. There's a little bit of pharisaical upbringings in all of us, especially if we're in the church for any length of time. 
Because we, we think we have it together and that person doesn't. Or we think the sermon isn't for us, but it's for the person that didn't show up that week. That we wish would have, because if they heard it, it's really for them, not for me. This was what the Pharisees perfected. The pointing of the finger, the praying in, in, in eloquent prayers on the street corner. The literal, literal tithing even of the mint and the herbs in their garden. So legalistic. The memorization of scripture. So much so if they got one iota or tittle wrong, they, they would tear up the scroll and have to start all over again. And yet all those things... They, they, they did with perfection, but they didn't understand the weightier things of God. What, what it meant to be merciful, what it meant to be kind, gracious, to love justice and mercy. Matthew chapter 16, and he runs in these Pharisees again. Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came and they tested him, asked what he would show them, a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrite. That there are signs all around us. Even those that sail know the signs. They didn't have a weather reporter to tell them from the news. They, they, they looked at the sky, they saw the signs, and if there was these certain characteristics of the sky, they knew what would happen because they had experienced it over and over again. What Jesus is saying here, they're able to see the signs, and you're a blind person who has read the scriptures over and over again, and you don't see the fulfillment of the Old Testament standing right in front of you. You're oblivious to prophetic power being shown right in your very presence, the Messiah incarnate right before you. You're blind. You're hypocritical. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them, departed. As we talked about when we first started the book of Matthew, Matthew is all about prophetic fulfillment, the power of prophecy. And Jesus fulfilling prophecy over and over again by healing uh, the sick, by healing the blind by healing the deaf, by raising the dead to life. Fulfillment of prophecy, the signs were right before them, but they were oblivious to the signs. And it's just like today also. Because are there signs all around us that Jesus is coming quickly? Thank God. Thank God. But the sign, except for the sign of Jonah, is, as Jesus says, of course, he goes into it um, more detail, uh, you know, in other uh, Gospels and later on also in the book of Matthew as well. The sign of the prophet Jonah, ironically, the prophet Jonah was a horrific missionary, right? Did Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Did Jonah even have concern for the Ninevites? No, he hated them. He didn't. He want. He wanted God to rain fire upon them. He didn't want to go so they wouldn't hear that G or that God loved them, so they would repent. He didn't want them to repent. He didn't want that to happen. He would rather have been thrown into the ocean than go to Nineveh. It wasn't that he was scared. He didn't want them to hear the good news. And so the sign of Jonah, what he's saying here, not only the three days in the belly of the well, what the Pharisees are doing 
They're preventing the people from hearing the good news by arguing, by, by coming up with all the, these nuances of the law in order to get Jesus to pay attention to these arguments and, and argue and what Jesus does. He presents the truth and then he leaves. He doesn't stay and fight. He doesn't stay and argue. He has more important things to do. Fulfilling prophecy, helping those that are sick, reaching out to those that are lost. Aren't you glad, by the way? Continues on there in, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 5. Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have taken no bread. By the way, Jesus, of course, you could have made bread right there. This isn't what he's talking about. Normally, every single time you see this word 11, and we've talked about this before, you take this little piece of, of dough that has a, a yeast in it or the leavening agent. And back then they didn't come in packets. So it was a starter uh, a piece of dough that they would have. You take a little piece off and you put it into a, a fresh batch uh, uh, of dough. And what happens with that leaven? What does it do throughout that loaf? It permeates the loaf of bread. It spreads, right? And, and this is the same thing what Jesus is saying here. The spreading of this a horrific nature of what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. Trying to nitpick those traditions, try, trying to, in such a way, detract what was truly important in life. And there's always going to be people like this, by the way. There's always going to be people like this. They want to argue the minors rather than understanding the truth of God's word. R rather than wanting the gospel to be fresh and new. To, to argue those things that detract from what is uh, truth. Jesus says it very clearly in verse 8. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bed? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 or how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I do, did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees? And the Sadducees, don't act like them because it's contagious. A little bit of arguing spreads. A little bit of gossip spreads. A little bit of sin spreads. A little bit of pride spreads. And it infiltrates the church. This is what Jesus is warning them about. Don't like them. And they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But Jesus is really showing them, don't be like those religious elite. Be like me. My, <clears throat> my mom there, there was three generations of pastors that came down. Yeah, men that I admire, men that I learned how to preach from, men that had knowledge of the Word of God. And to see them standing next to my mom and her submissive spirit to them, running the kitchen, running the, the nursery, and understanding the value of what it means to be a submissive person who every single day would wake up at 4.15 and make lunch for my dad and, and kiss him and send him on his way to work, and she herself would stay up and read her Bible. And not only the just the immensity of the knowledge of scriptures that he she had to understand that she had more scriptural knowledge than most pastors do. 
but yet she was submissive in her role, understanding what it meant to be a wife and a mother first and to impart that to the next generation. You see, the, what, and, and this is absolutely 100% true, by the way. They would have elder meetings and, and the, they'd have these what-if scenarios. What if the pastor gets hit by a bus 15 minutes before the service? What are we going to do? You elders need to have a sermon ready to go. And, and, and the laughter was, we can just get another pastor, but we can never get another Janice Jones. Pastors are a dime a dozen. If something happens to me, someone else is going to step up. No, no problem there. But a submissive heart, a, a, a humble heart, those are the people that Jesus is looking for. Th those are the ones that Jesus is looking for. In fact, he, he searches the whole world, Isaiah 66 says, for those that are humble and are contrite and hunger after the word of God. Those are the people that God is. A, a, a person that can stand up here, there's going to be another person. God's going to find those people. God's going to put those people in play. But those that are humble and contrite, those are the precious ones. Those are the ones that God looks after and sees. Matthew chapter Five, verse 20, again from the, an earlier section in the book of Matthew. <clears throat> Excuse me. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. They tithe, they prayed, they fasted, they knew the scriptures, and yet they missed heaven entirely why because they weren't righteous according to what god's righteousness is what's the standard for heaven you all know this is it a person is it a pastor a pharisee a sadducee or or another person that you know is is that the standard of righteousness no it's jesus christ in fact, that's exactly what he says here in this next section. By the way, if you really read the book of Matthew just straight through, it answers itself in the very next section. What is the standard of righteousness? And Jesus asks this question right here in the very next verse, in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? Or say that I, the Son of Man, am. They said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Again, this is right after he defines what it means to be righteous. This is right after he compares the righteousness of the Pharisees to what it means to really be righteous. This is right after that. He's answering the question of what is righteous? What is the standard of heaven? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who is the standard of righteousness? Jesus Christ. The son of the living God. Now, I hope as we, we wrap up tonight, I hope you read the rest of this because, again, we so many times piecemeal the scriptures and, and they're meant to flow. They're meant to be one right after another because in the very next paragraph, Peter is going to put his foot in his mouth. But in this case, as he's stepping up, just as he did when he walked on water and fell right after, he, he has it right. He has the truth as the Holy Spirit reminds him. By the way, this is not uh, Peter talking. This is not some revelation of a, of a, of a fisherman, okay? This is not some revelation of, of, of an Israelite who was chosen by, by Jesus to be a, an apostle. What does it say in the very next verse 17? 
Who revealed this to him? Who revealed this to him? Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Who gives us the revelation? It's not a pastor. Not a person. Not flesh and blood. It's the revelation of God itself to us. So every time you read the scripture, every time you open up the word of God, don't compare it to a person, please, never. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it. Ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom. And he'll show you amazing things. He'll bring the, the word of God to life. Majestic ways. And thank God for the scripture I, I love. And we do. Many times we put Peter down, but he told the truth. He stood up for what is right. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And by the way, in the, verse, the very next verse, I also say to you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We'll talk more about this next week. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth or will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Was there power from the prophetic word that Peter spoke claiming who Jesus Christ was? Yeah, yeah. In fact, so much so that the very church will be built upon those words that Peter said. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And is that true for us today, right now? Yes. And so, Father, tonight, no matter what has been happening in our lives, whether it's good or bad, tragic, or a blessing, whatever may be happening in our lives this coming week, help us to be reminded over and over again the truth of your scriptures, that it is you that should be the forefront in our lives, that it is you that's still on the throne, that it is you uh, that is the Son of God, that it, it is you that gives us abundant life, that it is you that gives us eternal life, not from a person but from the eternal God. And so, Lord, as we, we go our separate ways this week, as we, uh, we leave this building, Lord, help us not to be the same as we entered in, to have that desire to glorify you. I ask you, bless these, my friends and my family, my, my church family that is so faithful, and the desire to, to give of themselves more than they receive, and a desire to, to bless those around them that, that have been a blessing to me. Lord, abundantly bless them this week. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight.